Hiney pee, hiney pee, hiney pee. Naga hini karagiwi. Waziregi waganakshana. Wajaniwina hijankishana hini karagiwina. Hanachni pee, harajarawi. Pee, wang nangshana. Hamte e harmihe hamche. We hamp oi cabra canapananup naga jop. We te e hua jukwida jay. Iji krek jawi. Good morning and greetings from the land of 11 nations, or as everyone else calls it, Wisconsin. I am doing fantastic, and I sincerely hope that everyone else is as well. Well, with so much going on in the world today, and there really is so much going on, I was thinking that, Koreske, we could spend a couple of minutes together and just shut out all the noise from the outside world and just focus on our little part of it here. Talk about things that affect us directly, affect our families, our clans, our nation. First off, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you who spend some of your valuable time listening to this podcast. Time being the second most valuable gift that our Creator has bestowed upon us, it is of the utmost importance that I value your commitment and provide you, the listening audience, with the highest quality entertainment and discourse that I can provide. One of the cornerstones of this podcast is the feedback that I receive from the listening audience. I realize that the views espoused from this podcast are largely my own, and a great many of you disagree wholeheartedly with what I have to say, which is wonderful. I never wanted this podcast to be a one-way street. I wanted this podcast to be a venue, an online forum, where all of us, whole chunks can come together and discuss the political, financial, and cultural goings-on within the nation. It is surprising how many people are expressing themselves to this podcast, either in print or phone calls. And I think it's great, really, really great. The one downfall is the lack of feedback I'm receiving from those in the at-large area. We started this podcast in the hopes of sharing the goings-on at the TOB with the at-large area. Things haven't worked out quite according to plan. Now, if anyone has any ideas on how I can generate listenership and feedback from the at-large areas, I'm all ears and would love to hear your thoughts. If you'd like to contact podcasts, call me up if you have my number. I'm in my office darn near 24-7, so if you call, I'll probably answer. In the event I don't, leave a message and I will return your call. If you're super super busy and just found a moment uh, to call... Leave a message on when I can return your call and I'll call you back. If talking and texting isn't your thing, my Gmail address is moneycucksick at gmail.com. That's M-A-N-I-K-A-K-S-I-K at gmail.com. I'm betting a thousand percent on returning emails, so uh, hit me up with a thought or idea and I'll get back to you and we can flesh it out in more detail together. We do a lot of communicating on a Chipotle Facebook page, so if you got a minute, scroll on over and see if uh, we posted anything that curls your toes and uh, comment or post yourself. I'm always looking for comments. Now, we're also on X, aka Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, TikTok, um, some more than others. And I use some of these uh, social media sites better than others. So, if you want to contact the podcast, there are numerous vehicles to share your thoughts and ideas with uh, myself and everyone else.
One of the most uh, interesting and frustrating things I find is the Ho-Chunk Nation's relationship with 12 clans. 12 clans is a Section 17 corporation created to address the growing demand for non-gaming employment opportunities, economic diversification, and innovative and sustainable infrastructure. Let me read from a pamphlet that the legislature handed out at uh, General Council a few years ago. The Ho-Chunk Nation's legislature's effort. The effort to separate business from government has been examined in part through the years by the Ho-Chunk Nation. More recently, however, the legislature has intensified the focus of this process in order to enhance the nation's business operations. Through a series of meetings, discussions, and analysis, the option under consideration at this point is the Section 17 Federally Chartered Corporation. This provides a structure and framework to maximize economic development opportunities for the nation and its membership. It also separates some of the nation's business operations from the nation's government structure so they can be free to focus on business without political interference or the bureaucracy of the tribal government. At this stage, a draft Section 17 charter is being considered. Many tribes conduct their commercial activities through federally chartered corporations formed under Section 17 of the Indian Reorganization Act. To form a Section 17 corporation, a tribe must petition the Secretary of the Interior for issuance of a corporate charter. A Section 17 corporation provides a framework by which a tribe can segregate tribal business assets and liabilities from the assets and liability of tribal government. It also preserves the integrity of the decision-making process of tribal government officials by separating business decisions. The Charter will define the powers of the corporation. Several courts have held that Section 17 corporations formed under Section 17 have the same tax status as the tribe and are not subject to federal income taxes for income derived from on or off reservation activities. Now, that was years ago, and that was the legislature. Um, times have changed, and the legislature now seems inclined to do everything themselves in house and to freeze out 12 clans. Um, I don't understand why, because none of our legislators have a history of being in business. Um, I can't think of any of the businesses that they've started. and But be that as it may, that's where we're at. And I just I want to keep in front of everyone the thought that we may not have a Title 25 forever. With a stroke of a pen, all of our political underpinnings could be swept away. Now, there have been numerous attempts at termination throughout our history. We have to build a financial house for ourselves if we are to be a viable and formidable entity going into the future. Our Section 17 Corporation gives us the opportunity without all the internal politics and family squabbles. I don't want to hold you guys up anymore uh, with my nonsensical ramblings. I have two guests on this uh, week's show. Andy Cloud, legislative candidate for the vacant District 3C3, and Tim Harjo, an attorney working uh, with Indigenous Nations on a variety of projects. So, 
As the kids say, without further ado, let's get to it. Rakiriwira Hi Pink. Good morning. I'm very to introduce my next guest, a candidate for District 3, Seat 3 of the Ho Chunk Nation, Andy Cloud. Thank you for joining me this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, the honor is mine. And I um, just thought we'd uh, cut to the chase here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. So um, can you share with us a little bit of uh, who you are, kind of who your family is, touch on your academic background, if you would, and a little bit of your work uh, history. Just share as much as you want. You know, you don't have to go into too much depth, but... uh, you know, we're we're kind of nosy. We want to know who you are and what you're up to. Not a problem. I grew up in Black River Falls. Well, I grew up in the Indian Mission, and so that's uh, would be District One. And I grew up in a single parent household. My mom's Shelley Thundercloud. Her parents are the late Lawrence Thundercloud and the late Edith Pettibone Thundercloud. And on my father's side, my father is Arnold Cloud, and his parents are Harry Cloud and Delphine Blackcoon. Um, growing up, I, I grew up mostly with my mom's family, but I feel like my mom really kind of pushed that, getting to know the Cloud side, and I'm glad she did because I know some of my Chewies and my Jajis and my Gaga Delphine, um, who is the legendary basket maker herself and my cloud relatives so i'm really happy that my cloud relatives they call me nani and i'm a gaga now Uh, i've been a gaga for a while and um also a sister and so it just warms my heart that i have that those connections whenever i go uh, mostly to the wisconsin dells area but no growing up it was my mom's side of the family so you know those very early lessons um I feel like my Choka and my Gaga Edith were really instrumental in in showing me, well, for my Gaga Edith, showing me that generosity and that love that we have and that what Ho-Chunk kind of, you know, our foundations of the people that love and that selflessness. And I feel like she really not only embodied her, embodied her children with all those values, but also myself like when I reach to those things I think about her all the time and my Choka Lawrence um who we call who we call Nanine um and that's a tangent story but when I was a kid (laughs) (laughs) when I was a kid when I was starting to talk um he'd have his friends over and they always call him sunshine I was always sunshine all the time. And I, was, and I started to say, I said that. And I said, I tried to say sunshine and it came out nine. <laughs> and that stuck with my choka up until he passed away. But no, we always called our choka nine, all of us grandkids. And so from him, I got, you know, I kind of learned the work ethic and kind of really making things happen for yourself. And not really, and being independent, not really depending on others, and kind of that family care ethic as well, um, because he took care of all of us um, up until the end. And 
So when I think of the work ethic, I also think of he gave me uh, a lot of humility and to understand and recognize and acknowledge what that is as an Indigenous person, as a Ho-Chunk person, because, you know, he didn't like show offs and... um, I don't really like show us either. <laughs> but um, so those were the gifts that uh, my grandparents gave me. That's what I was brought up with and, and kind of like the atmosphere that I was brought up in. And so when I graduated high school, I, I knew I wanted to go to college and I picked UW lacrosse, uh, go Eagles. And <laughs> I did my bachelor of science work. I got a double major in political political science and public uh, public relations uh, with communication studies and then I took a few years off and I went traveling went out west I really love the mountains I love Montana it's like my second home and I came back and I did my master's work at UWL again and I think if they had a doctorate at UW lacrosse I probably would have done that and I think the doctorate has always been like in the back of my mind, like it's, it's there. And I kind of, if I think about it, it's like, um, maybe like a Juris doctor, it would be nice to be a lawyer. And I also think about like somewhere in environmental leadership or environmental stewardship, you know, something to that end. So those are the kind of the two areas that I would really like if I, if I get there, I don't know. It's, it's there, but then it's like the, the dissertation and <laughs> they're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to go through that again because I did a thesis and that was a lot. But um, no, um, I love my time at UWL. I met one of my great friends and my brother, Matt Stewart, who is a Fond du Lac Anishinaabe, and he really took me under his wing and just a lot of um, social justice you know, advocacy, advocacy work, grassroots work, and kind of, you know, when you have nothing to make something out of nothing is kind of what Matt really gave me. Um, his Wangshik name and his tribe is Megizi. And so it means eagle. And so every time I see an eagle, it's like he's there. <laughs> and he, he's been with me for a long time. He passed away uh just right the year after I got my master, uh, my master's. Yeah. So he's been gone a while, but I always feel like he's with me wherever I am. And so after college, um, I went out West, went out to Salt Lake city, taught college for a little bit. And then that was kind of like the plan. It's just to stay out there. And then my Choka, my nine, he, um, he got a stroke, a mild stroke and he lost vision in his right eye. And, um, it's funny, like my people, my family don't like to tell me bad things <laughs> that happen. I don't know if they think I'm going to worry or anything, but, uh, when I came home, I found that it happened. And I mean, he's this old school Ho-Chunk that always, he'd always go, be on the road. He'd be, you know, back roads. He'd have <laughs> this certain routine he would do every day. He'd, you know, wake up in the morning, leave about 8.30. He'd go to uh, Quick Trip and get his Karuba, his newspapers, go check the mail. And then he'd go on, like, one of several routes that he had. And so I knew that it was affecting him because he wasn't doing his routine. And, I mean, I could see it. You can just feel when your Choka or your Gaga are just not right. And um, so I ended up coming home, and I was the driver. 
you know, and I think we all took all as family. Um, my Degas and me all took part in, in driving him and taking him on his, on his roads. And so um, I did that for a while. And then my sister started, um, started helping out. And that's when I kind of like finally was like, maybe I can kind of go back to the West and, and figure out something. And so um, she took on a lot about the house chores and his house chores. And um, so then I was like, well, I'm going to go back out West. So I went to Hollywood oh, and wow. I was in Hollywood for about three months uh, in Los Angeles and trying to get something started there. And I got a call from my Dega Tracy and he said that uh, Nanine's in the hospital and uh, it's kind of like the call that you never want to get as a, a Chujunk. And so, um, uh, he was like, well, you don't need to come back, but I'm just telling you. I was like, okay, well, <laughs> we hung up. I started looking for flights, and I'm like, okay, well, in case, just, I mean, I have this information. And the next day, he called me back, and he's like, yeah, you got to come back. It's not good. Um, so then, I mean, I got the, I booked the flight. I had to find some way to get to LAX because I didn't have a car or anything, so I mass transited it all my way so went on the bus got the bus to the subway subway to their grand central and then grand central i got caught a shuttle and to the airport and so i was on my way to lax and it was kind of close because my flight i think we were wheels up at like 4 30 and it was like maybe almost getting to three o'clock <laughs> and so on that but on that shuttle i said a prayer and i was like God, if he is suffering, if he's in pain, just take him. I'm I'm okay. I don't have to see him. I have, you know, there's, I am, I am fulfilled. I, I don't need anything more from him. And I don't really want to see him like that anyway. And not, there is not. any more of a minute or two and I got a text message from my Dega saying that he was gone and so I mean it was it was crazy and I was in shock I was sad and it was really I mean I'd, I'd came home and traditionally you know you remove all their belongings from their their place their space and that that's what happened it was his room was empty and um it was just yeah one of those things i and i think that that's the worst um things that i have to, i had to go through getting older is losing my heroes losing and seeing my giants kind of falter in a way but um that definitely was an um an eye-opening moment for me is that like you've got to take the baton you got to be stronger and you gotta be you gotta work on being a leader and it's it's your time so um i moved to green bay and um uh, it was during covid and that was covid had hit this was my choka had passed away before covid 
but then it couple years later there was COVID I was in Green Bay and so what I did was I learned how to I I learned how to bead so my bead work I learned how to sew and so that kind of got me through those those years that we were all shut down and then um I got a job with Oneida and kind of learned a little bit of the language learned a little bit of their culture and I I, I love I, I love my time in Oneida and I'm still around Oneida and they're just wonderful people, very welcoming. And I could see Sigoli and I get like five Sigolis back. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then this all happened this past month, uh, the past three weeks, not even a month. And so I knew it was always going to be my time to be here. I just didn't know this is how it was going to happen. Um, I felt in my heart that I had to run. And so hopefully, you know, and here we are. <laughs> well, thanks for that. That was, um, yeah, it was quite a bit of sharing. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, well, let me ask you then, why do you want to be a legislator? Because I think the people need someone that's going to be in their corner right now more than ever. I think the last administration kind of really, you know, you hear things, you know, your whole chunks, we talk. And the things that I was hearing wasn't good. Um, are, I mean, you know, when your legislature has to devise a commission in order to safeguard I mean, our finances, and there's a problem there, you know, the, we saw a way, a, a doing away with committees that were there for a very long time. Um, but also the relationship aspect of it is like, I mean, we have this four branch government and all these governmental branches have that checks and balances, but they also, there's a respect there and I think they need to work together. And I just feel like that wasn't being done. I feel like the people were not, well, in my case, I don't want to talk for the people, but in my case, it wasn't, there was no transparency. There was no talking and reassuring the tribal membership or myself that we were okay. It was just all, everything stopped. Everything was quiet. And I feel like we were in the dark and, um, it was just really unfortunate. And I think that that's not what government should be. And so for me, government to me is, you know, when you put your name on that ballot, when you put your name on that nomination form, it's a, you're all, you're a public servant. You service the public. Um, it's not a, it's not a glam job. It's a job. It's twenty four seven job. It's a job that you have to be boots on the ground every day of every minute, um, and you have to show up. You have to be there for your people, and I feel like the virtualness, kind of just really the WebEx era that we're in right now, it takes away from that because that's not the kind of people that we are. We show up. We visit. We take care of each other. You know, if you're coming to my house, you're gonna get a meal. You're going to get uh, a sounding board, a, maybe a shoulder to cry on. Um, but I think that that 
that whole chunk, you know, those values and who we're supposed to be, I think that got lost. It's been lost for a little bit of a while. I mean, I think there's legislators that still have those ways, and it's my hope that they continue that. But we need to make it stronger. We need to bring it back. And that's why I am running. I'm running because I want better for everybody, you know. And it it doesn't matter if you vote for me or if you don't. I mean, I'm still your legislator. I will still advocate. I will still, you know, bring it for you every day in every meeting. Um, and that goes across the board. Like religion, I don't care what you practice. It, you know, as long as you feel good and that takes care of your spirit, and that's fine with me. Um, socioeconomic status, you know, who's related to who. I, it doesn't matter. It, what matters is that your concerns are being met and your voice is being heard. And then I am making the best decisions as I can as a servant for the good of everyone and not just a select few. As um, a legislator, what are the things that you would like to accomplish in your tenure? What are the things that are important to you? Community is important to me. Um, I feel the drug and opioid epidemic that we're in, that we've been in, it's, and that's a, a bigger can of worms, I understand. But understanding where we have come from, our trauma, our mental, our mental health, and relating that and educating that, um, so I think in my ten, this first ter, this first term, I would want to work on really getting into into the communities, into these you know District Three. It's our most populated district of the three districts in the state, and I have five communities and more when you consider some of the communities that people aren't really in. But there's five main communities. And, you know, they all are different. They all have different people, different concerns. And I would like to see that addressed and, and the problems that maybe have been there for a while and how can, they, how can we solve those problems? And I want to invite the community and feel, and I want the community to feel like they are a part of the table. They're a part of the discussion. I want to, I guess, kind of build that, rebuild and build that trust back that we lost, you know, the past, you know, what COVID took away from us, I think was a lot. And so to repair that, to strengthen our communities, to educate and prevent, you know, and do anything I can with, with our tribal action plan, with the, the Kijide Nagu, the healing center that, that has been the works forever. Um, I think first and foremost, it's those things and just that repair work that we have to do. And I think the other things will follow along after that. So that is, yeah, the first term is, as I see it. What do you see of the strengths of District 3? And uh, how will you go about exploiting these strengths? 
the strengths of District 3, there are, it, it varies within the communities. I think there's communities that have really good organizers and they do, they put on a lot of great programming, but I also think there's other communities that want to do that and that just don't maybe have the tools or, you know, um, so yeah, so that would be, that would be one. As you were saying, you were talking just a little bit about how big uh, District 3 is geographically and how many people are in there. Have you uh, managed to talk with any other legislators on uh, how they stay in touch with their constituents? Um, is it strictly, you know, by phone, by um, computer? I mean, how do they, how do you know what the, your constituents need and want? Uh, how, how do you plan on working with that? I think our just our, our legislators have their phone numbers. I've heard in district meetings that I've been to is like they must provide their maybe their work cell, um, and I think that's great. I think that there's it has to be that kind of connection, I guess, it, it, in order for you know tribal members to feel like they can call on you. But I also feel that the district meetings are kind of those, that's the, that's the main way I feel of communication. Um, and that's with any kind of concern. That's what those district meetings are for. And in the Legislative Organization Act, it's actually, you know, mandated that is one of your duties as a legislator is to is to be at those meetings, like be present and attend those meetings. And I was just looking at it too, and there's this, um, it's another one under the LOA, our uh, Legislative Organization Act, sorry, um, <laughs> that says that you can attend through virtual, and I just don't agree with that. I just, I, I don't know how, when that got in there, it probably says like at the end when they have like all the updates that, that are, um, that have happened, but, and it probably says that where that change or when they amended that act, when that was there, but I just, I don't like that. Um, so yeah, so I would say, you know, use your district meetings and I've used my district meetings for a while and um, there's a lot of stuff that gets done in those district meetings, but there's also a lot of stuff that, you know, tribal members bring up and it, it just falls to the wayside. And I think that needs to change. I think there's got to be action or at least a kind of like a, a follow-up. And I feel, I mean, there's some stuff that I haven't, that, I, that I've requested out of my district uh, three legislators. I haven't, I, I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. We, I think we got to work on that. Um, you know? So... One of the issues I have with legislators, and this is strictly me now, um, is there need to be social workers for members in their district. Uh, when people have an issue, they tend to go right to their legislators instead of the uh, appropriate departments. I'm sure there's reasons for this, but uh, this takes up a, you know, a lot of time from the legislator. Do you see this as a problem, or is this simply part of the job going forward? Yeah, I was looking at that question, and... Um... 
I know, I understand what the question asks, and but I feel, and it was, it's weird because I saw your question and then I was um, talking to one of my good friends and he had brought that up and, and he had put a label on it. And I feel that's what, that's what that is. It's, it's a label and I hate that. I don't like it, but um, no, you know, well, let me stop if you right there. Get, what what, what, if, what do you mean? Oh, um, what a part? What a part? Uh, what about that? Don't you like? You feel that that that's not a fair question. I feel like why why are we labeling the the job like social workers like it's a bad thing? Okay. You know, I, I feel like it, there's a negative connotation with that. I don't. I mean, I understand. I I can see why a person would think that. And I, and I, but I, I just feel like, like, why are you in, you know, why are you in public service if you feel that way? Um, because I feel like when you, when you're a legislator or your representative or any kind of public office that you hold, that's gonna be a gray area for you is to take care of taking care of your constituents, taking care of your people. And you know, when people start labeling it as such as a social worker, well, that's, yeah, like at the end there, yeah, that's part of the job. It's part of what you signed up for. Um, you have to be accountable to your people. You have to be face to face with them and answer and take take the hard hits. I've seen some hard hitters and some spice that, that area meeting week. And yeah, it's going to be tough like that. And there's going to be people wanting different things from you all the time. <laughs> You're right. And yeah, but I feel like you do that work through enacting legislation through creating legislation. And, you know, there's a part of that and there's your meetings and there you're, different relations that you have with different governments, with different tribal governments, federal government, state government, um, municipalities, that is part of the job as well. But I also think first and foremost, you're there for the people. You know, um, this government was, our government was started by the people. And that first branch is the general council. And, you know, I always, I, you know, and I'm going to be bringing this up a lot, but that those Ho-Chunk ways, those old ways is you care for everybody. And if that's not being a social worker, and because it is, it's social, it's social work. It's what you're doing all day, every time. When you enact those legislation, when you pass a budget for programming, you know, that's, that's what I feel that is. You're taking care of people. You're taking care of all ages elders, veterans, children, um, adults, I mean, everyone. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put a bad rap on any legislator that is kind of looks like they're doing social work or, you know, has attached that name to it, given that label to them, because I think they're doing their job. And I think the people know that they're doing their job and that's why they get voted in again. And maybe that's why you lose an election is because you're, they know who you are and they know the work that you're going to put in every day. And I, I remember, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but we lost electricity 
in um, on Ho Chunk Boulevard in in Green Bay, and right right away, you know, I got the legislators were on it. So, and that's I think that's the gift of being a tribal government and being so small is because you're there for the people. You're the next. You're ne- you're living next door. You're not living in a gated community, and maybe you are if you're you know that high up, but then. You shouldn't be in public service if that's what you think, if that's what, you know, because it's part of the job. It's not all of it. It's not all of it, but it's definitely part of it. So, yeah. Very good. Thanks. Um, I like that answer. Um, as a legislator, um, you're going to be responsible for a whole lot and you're going to be hit with um, a mountain of information on your first couple of days. And it's like, I know it's impossible to keep up to speed on everything, but um, what are some of the areas nationwide that you would like to focus on, Um, you know, in your interaction with the state, the Fed? um, What are some of the things that interest you? Well, I think uh, sustainability is one, you know, how can we sustain ourselves? And that's looking at, and I know you have a a question on class and comp coming up here, but it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's looking out for yeah employment our jobs you know how can we get more jobs and i know that i think currently i just read that there was like 46 pages to our job posting and i know we have a lot of ho-chunks that are unemployed so i want to see where the disconnect is there like why what's going on you know personnel why are we why do we why do we have 46 pages of job postings and me, myself, with my experience with working with the nation, it's it's a long process to get a job. It takes like a month if you're lucky. And so I want to figure out what that, what's going on there. So employment, housing, I think housing is really important. And um, there's a lot of empty houses that when I've been going, um, I've been going through our communities in District 3, and there's... There are some houses, and I uh, looked, I read our our annual report that we got at General Council. There's 57 families on the waiting list. That's 57 too many. And so what can we do? Do we have to make master contracts with, you know, different remodeling and renovation um, businesses, like local businesses in these areas to keep up to date with, you know, um, fixing these houses so that they are, they're code worthy, that families can move in them. You know, so those are the two things, housing, employment, a community, I've said, um, the drug opioid epidemic, definitely. So all those things. And then also, you know, our business ventures and where we're at with business. Um, I think that's, I, and I, I understand the 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 mountainous work that I will be. <laughs> I'm going to be like this big, super huge sponge. I feel, but yeah, you're right. I'm I'm going to have to. I'm going to be hit with a lot of different things. That if if I win, I'm going to be hit with a lot of these other these things that. Um, but I have been following the tribe. I kind of know the inner workings. I know our policies. I understand our government. I understand how it was made, how it works. And it's just, so I think, you know, half the work is already, I I know. It's just the other, the other stuff that I have to be prepared for. But, um, 
yeah, I've been around the legislative branch, all the branches actually, um, through through college and through my adult life. I have been on the election board. I've helped out the general counsel agency when there was a general counsel agency. Um, and so I, I know a lot about resolutions. I know how to make resolutions. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, but yeah, there's more than that. And I understand that. Two of the largest cities in Wisconsin are in a, are in your district. Now, how does this affect your vision for the district, uh, your, uh, the vision of the future for district three or, or really does it? I think it does because then you're, you know, you're dealing with like cities, like huge, huge cities. And you're not, whereas like, I think three of them are kind of like more or two really are kind of like more rural. And so I think urban is definitely, definitely going to be a challenge. And I think what you have to do is really get out there. I mean, just get out there, try to talk to these tribal members because I feel a lot of tribal members that are in those big cities kind of seem like they feel like they're forgotten. And I don't blame them because it's like when you go to district meetings, it's the, you know, those squeaky tires get the, get the oil, you know, (laughs) it's just like, but that, and, and there's some communities that do operate like that. And I, I've been a part of district one, so I kind of know, you know, I've, I attend district meetings from when I was in high school. I've been attending district meetings off and on. And, and so I kind of know how heated, how tension, how high tensions get in those meetings, but to kind of create an environment, create a climate where these cities, the, the tribal members in these cities can come and feel comfortable enough and feel, you know, and that trust is built and, you know, they trust me enough to come and show up and talk to me about what they need. And um, I was reading that we just got a grant for like, I don't know, X hundred amount of solar solar panels or solar energy we're going to be venturing off into. It'd be great if we if we looked at solar and alternative energies for our homeowners that are in those cities or, you know, because, I mean, cost of living is only going up. I know we don't really pay a whole lot to begin with. I mean, we've raised the how much we pay our workers. But I think, you know, we got to start looking at these cities and, you know, how much are the people in Madison making um, and what and what aren't they, you know, and who can we reach out to especially in like milwaukee green bay you know what does green bay need what how do we get out there and that's going to be the biggest challenge is meeting these tribal members that do live in these big cities how do we connect with them how do how does how do we get out and and have dialogue and see what they need because they are us as well they're they're a part of us that, you know, district three, we're all together. And so, um, that's how I would do that. <laughs> okay. This is uh this isn't a fair question, but I'll ask you anyways, and you don't have to answer it, but, um, cause you might not know, but, uh, what is the financial shape of the whole chunk nation presently in your view and how much responsibility falls on the legislatures to shape the financial viability of the nation? 
Yeah, well, I think I think after COVID, that took a, a big hit to us because our facilities, our, our main source of revenue was shut down. I think we're trying to catch up now, just like you see, you know, there's these shortages everywhere. And that's not, I mean, that's definitely the case for us as well there's we have shortages we have to and I feel like we're catching up right now we're catching up and I have to thank and be grateful for the tribal members that kind of you know um they they want to show up and and they want they understand and there's patience there and there's understanding which I am so grateful for um, I am grateful there wasn't a coup d'etat at the general council <laughs> and that people, and, and they wanted to sit there and continue the meeting. That was, that was a proud moment for me when they voted no on that, on that adjournment. But, um, hey, that no, was I me. feel like we, that was me who made that adjournment. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we. Yeah, no, no, no. I got defeated. That's fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, you can tell that we're here, and I think people do miss per cap, um, and they want it back. It's just figuring out that picture and what it looks like. And I think we're just right now we're playing catch up, and we're trying to get everything all ready. And maybe like two years, you know, maybe we'll be there. Um, so that's that's my feeling. That's what I see. I got um, one more economic kind of like is um, 12 clans. Uh, what are your views on 12 clans? Um, I kind of want to explain it. I mean, is it a vehicle to enhance the nation's economic opportunities or should just be a, the legislature do it? Well, it's supposed to be that first one. Um, 12 clans <laughs> is created to create economic diversity. And um, I think you know, 12 clans, how long has it been around for? Since 20, do you know how long it's been around for? I want to say 1996, but that could be wrong. Yeah. I know it's been there for a while. I get like these mailers that say, oh, we're having our uh, our shareholders or stakeholders meeting. Um, but I never, I never go. I don't know if anybody does. Yeah, we never but, make, uh, we never make quorum. <laughs> and it's I mean I I mean these guys are in investment I had I was in the investment club in my high school and I still really um, kind of do like play around and check out those uh, those stocks but 12 clans yeah I think that was the legislature of that time and even now saying like we're looking into economic diversification and I think that's really good I just feel like it there needs to be more of that we need to look start looking into ways that go back to our values of sustainability you know the environment um and it would be nice to see what that looks like but for 12 clans I'm hoping they're doing good and they're making money and it's kind of, but you just don't hear about it. And I don't think anybody brings it up. It's kind of like that back burner that's like slowly burning, but you don't really pay attention to it. Um, that's how I feel 12 clans are. So, but I think it's a, it's a good idea and 
I just want to know more about it. And when I find out more, I'm definitely going to relay that to District 3 and saying this is what it's doing. This is the good that it's it's bringing. And then if that's not the picture, well, do we need to think about it? Absolutely. Let me uh, go further with that. Um, we have two projects. Well, two issues, uh, Beloit Casino and Southland. Um, do you have any views on either of those projects? I saw that question and about <laughs> Southland, and I was like, I thought we got rid of that. <laughs> um, I thought General Counsel said to get rid of it, but I guess it hasn't been acted on, maybe. Um, and again, you know, diversification and just different ventures that we try. And I think you're always going to get kind of like a, because it's something new. And I think people, you know, we're set in our ways. We don't really like to change that much. But, I mean, we still have it. There's got to be kind of like a, a virtue somewhere in there while we still have it and it's still there. I just looked at the website and um, they're doing different kinds of things, uh, different kinds of like sporting events there. And um, I think that's really great. It's just like, how much do we make from it, you know? And and I feel, again, there's there's a ball being dropped somewhere because... This information isn't getting out to the tribal membership. If it's doing good, if it's not doing good, I think people just think, oh, it's just like kind of like a, like one of those things that you, you know, if you, you're going to have a sale, that's the first thing that has to go. And uh, we should give it a chance. Um, And I think that's definitely, the legislature, they're holding on to it. And I don't know why, but there's something there and there's always like, you know, different sides to a story and even a venture. And so you have to hear all of it before you can make actually an educated decision on what to do next. But I think with that and then with Beloit, is that the other one you said? Correct. Yeah, it's there. It's just, I don't know what, what's stalling it. Um, The last, meeting district meeting that i went to what was told to us in green bay is that we still have a presence there and there's a pr person that total that is just focused on on beloit and uh there was a golf outing that they had with the public officials there kind of just to just to keep the public in the know that we are still interested and we're still here. And so I don't know why it stopped because, you know, before this, this previous administration, I thought it was all gun hall. We're going to do it. We're going to open it. There's rendered um, pictures of what it would look like. And they look pretty awesome. But then you just didn't hear anything. It was just quiet, (laughs) quiet again. And I just, yeah, I mean, it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be great when it does open and when we break ground. Um, I feel like I've heard some Milwaukee people say, well, I'm going to apply until that's great. Um, but I feel, I feel like that's a really huge uh, success. If we do get it going and get the ball rolling again on it, it's going to be it might be a game changer, but then again, it might also take away from Madison and Madison's kind of like our, you know, it's our war bird right now. It's what we're making the most money is old junk gaming Madison right now. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see 
when we do get the footwork on that and, and what's really going on there. Well, you've already brought the subject up, but let's um, let's put it to bed. Um, has the Ho-Chunk Nation done enough work on addressing comp and class for casino, hotel, C-store, and then the basic Ho-Chunk Nation employees? Is this something we should, uh, the legislature, be even involved with, or is this something that should be uh, handled by the um, president's office? Yeah, class and comp. Um, well, definitely, our constitution says that you know the finance, like the financial fiduciary responsibilities, fall on the legislature. So I don't think you can get away with that unless you amend the constitution. Um, I also think that um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be something that we're always gonna have to to address it's always going to be there i mean you look at class and comp and then you look at the cost of living like i said before it's only going to go up um and so yeah unfortunately it is i mean i've heard like doing grade levels for employees i've heard of of not having a cap for wages and <laughs> it's definitely I think the legislature collectively has to think about it and we have to get in the people that the experts that we know that we trust. Um, that's why they have advisors, you know, and we have to be working together with the executive branch and to see what that picture looks like, because, you know, treasury, we got to depend on our treasury and we got to depend on, you know, I think they have auditors that are in house with legislature. There are people that, you know, we have people looking at the numbers and different things like that. And yeah, it's it's crazy, um, but that is the the game of class and comp. It's ever changing because, as the, you know, inflation, all these things have to be accounted for, and cost of living is ever changing because now, I mean, we have a housing market that's just crazy, and there's things out there that I mean, it's you're looking for like places in the city of Madison, the city of Green Bay, those places have gone up in rent. Food's not getting any cheaper. Foods have gone up in rent. So, you know, you have maybe a single parent or maybe both parents work. Um, you have to, childcare. I mean, and these are the people that work for us, you know, and Madison is going to be of a lot more expensive than if you're living in Nakusa, Wisconsin. You know, if you're living in Green Bay, it might be maybe different. Milwaukee, same thing. Wittenberg, same thing. All of these are going to be different, but we have to look at that and we have to look at it together. And that's the only way we make it through um, class and comp and it's ever changing. So we, you know, it's something that we have to address, redress every year. I think when our our fiscal budgets come out, you know, our fiscal year is up. We have to figure that out. Let me um, give you a little bit easier question here. Uh, I can hit you pretty hard. Um, you visited a lot of the facilities in District Air, uh, District 3 uh, through your lifetime. Um, are you happy with what you've seen? And could we make upgrades in some of the situations? Um, I think... With all of the areas, 
that I have seen the like the buildings that we have. I think they're okay, but if you look at us as a whole, <laughs> I think we need to definitely think about things. Um, I think when we did the the those renovations that we did on all different properties at the same time, I think that was kind of a big mistake. Like we shouldn't have did you know, all of them all at once. We should have picked, like I had a priorities list and at least picked like the top three. And then maybe the next year or in four years, it would go to different projects and different renovations that we need. But for for like Green Bay example, because I can speak about Green Bay because that's where I'm from, um, we want a new kitchen. And I think HHCDA is helping us with getting a kitchen and to and the HHCDA is so great they're wonderful I love that they do these grants and they apply for different grants that help us and we need more of that though we need more of that in the and, and I don't know I don't know if you know I know Madison looks pretty okay because you know they have the the day jolt building and i think that's great and i love that building it's a beautiful building but there is like like wittenberg has the seagull fun maker center oh my god that's a beautiful building as well um but is there other other things that these these communities would like to see and then how can we get help how can we get money that we're not like the nation itself isn't really footing the bill where we can rely on these different sources of 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 money these grants that we can you know i want to see you know what is our grant writing who are our grant writers how do we get there's money out there we just got to get it and if you know and what these what do these communities want what do they need um i think that's that's really important and so from me looking around yeah there's a little bit of things that we could do there's, you know, uh, regarding buildings that we can definitely do. There's also with housing, and that's not really building, but um, kind of like the smaller part of it. But no, there's we got to do a lot of stuff with housing and kind of getting getting things fixed and houses fixed. And I mean, oh, everywhere, everybody needs. I think housing is the biggest thing, but buildings. I think we're doing okay right now, but I really haven't sat down and talked to areas um, in a meaningful way where that, you know, those conversations do come out. And um, that's what I would really like to hear and work on and, you know, find, find those funding sources. All right. Well, I'd like to wrap it up. Um, unfortunately, we're running up against the clock. So I'd like to give you one last opportunity um, to give you the floor. And um, anything you think I've missed, any question you think you would have liked to uh, have me ask and I didn't ask, um, please, floor is yours. Speak out. Thanks. Thanks, Shelby. Well, I want to say to get out the vote. Just vote. Vote. You don't have to vote for me. Vote for who you feel is going to lead with a good heart for everyone um 
there's four candidates and one write-in. Uh, we are, there are District 3 members in Madison organizing a forum, a candidate forum on the 27th. We're going to have a meal from 5 to 6 and then 6 o'clock. Um, any questions you want to ask, um, bring them. Or I, I, I think IT is going to have a WebEx. So kind of be thinking of questions that you want to ask these candidates, us candidates. Um, I just want to say that, you know, I know that this has been a hard road. And I think, you know, that's what we call our, ourselves Ho-Chunk. I once heard one of my elders say that it's hard to be Ho-Chunk. This is a hard life, and sure is. Um, but know that I'm there with you, and I'll stand by you. And, um, you know, whatever I can do, uh, I will do it, and I will show up. I will be there. Um And I just want to say, thank you. Well, thanks for your time. And if anyone has any questions or comments for you, uh, how can they get in contact with you? Um, you can contact me through Facebook, AJ4D3. <laughs> it's the letters and the numbers. And um, you can also contact me through my Gmail. It's cloud, C-L-O-U-D, dot andy a-n-d-i at gmail.com all righty and don't forget last day to uh, request absentee balance is september 30th and those ballots got to be received by uh 7 p.m on uh, thursday october 5th and strange you left a special election is going to be on october 5th polls open on 8 a.m and close at 7 and i'd like to thank uh andy cloud for participating Thank you very much for uh, giving us all, so much of your time and so many good answers. And uh, good luck. Thank you. Rakiriwida Haipint. Tonight, I am lucky to have attorney Tim Harjo, um, experienced at the economic development and policy in Indian country. How are you doing tonight, sir? Doing good. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Um, we had you a long time ago was discussing a different matter. But tonight, I thought I would bring you on um, to discuss the Harvard Project. Um, what that means to indigenous nations throughout the country. And eventually, what it might mean to the Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin. But... Um, I'd like to know if you could just give us a quick overview of what the program is and what it's supposed to do for indigenous nations. Sure. Well, as, I was a graduate student at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government from 2005 to 2007. And so I was able to kind of see firsthand uh, a lot of the different kinds of work that the Back then, it was called the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development. And in the recent years, they've changed the name to the Harvard Project. Sorry, the Harvard Project on Indigenous Governance. And uh, I believe that a lot of the work still kind of evolves around this, this notion of 
how can tribes succeed? You know, what is what are some of the factors that help increase the chances of tribal success, whether that be through economic development, through governance structure, through uh, systems of of leadership, culture, and and um, and how those factors kind of interplay with each other in a given community. How many um, indigenous leaders have come through Harvard and um, kind of espoused those principles for their people? Do you know offhand? Well, I, just off the top of my head, there have been several uh, uh, folks that have come through that program. And, uh, well, through the Kennedy School of Government program, in terms of its master's degrees in public policy and master's in public administration. And while there, uh, you know, worked either with the project or did research for the project or uh, was a tribal leader uh, who may not have gone through graduate school there who had, uh, you know, contracted the project uh, with the project to prov- uh, get services from them in terms of research and that kind of thing. And so uh, there's been lots of interactions with folks that ultimately have worked in Indian country or on behalf of Indian country who've had affiliations with the project over the years. And uh, a lot of them have been uh, graduate students, of course, like I mentioned, but also they did research projects and publications while they were there as well. And so there's there's kind of a different varying body of work uh, that the project has been part of over the last, you know, since the 1980s, I believe. Now, are these indigenous people themselves running the program or is this, um, how do I say this nicely? Um, peoples of the larger society that are kind of like being benevolent towards um, native people and trying to help them out? Or is this um, Indians taking care of themselves? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's it's like anything. You've got different folks from different backgrounds who have been part of the staff and research um, uh, professionals that worked for the project over the years uh, because it was affiliated with the university of course in this case the Harvard uh, well Harvard University um, sometimes these types of organizations are headed up by a tenured professor in this case it's, uh, Professor Joseph Culp and um, and I think he had a uh, a colleague with him, co-directors or uh, something to that effect. I believe his name was Stephen Cornell. And over the years, they've collaborated together. And I don't believe they're, uh, you know, members of tribe or um, what we say indigenous. But uh, a lot of their uh, other management over the years have been natives. And for one. Um, Dr. Manly Begay, I believe, 
uh, got his uh, PhD in education from Harvard and went on to become one of the um, uh, executives with the project over the years. What are the tools that uh, the Harvard project um, tries to give to the indigenous nations to, to build their economies, to build their governance? Um, do they come out to the field or does everybody go to them or do they have a, a book um, that they share the information? How do they get this information out to the people? Yeah, well, I mean, what I've seen them do over the years is they'll do uh, a mixture of field work, uh, research, uh, either original design research or uh, also uh, kind of a survey of, of existing research to, to try and uh, put out a report or a publication on, a, on kind of a very specific question. Um, sometimes they put out books. Uh, I think there was one that came out a few years ago about the state of Native nations. I can't remember if that's the exact name, but um, uh, they um, also do, or used to do at least, uh, like this annual publication called Honoring Nations, where they would look at a, a host of different tribal either businesses or operations that uh, either were nom nominated or became uh, known to the folks at the project. And basically, you know, effort to kind of rank the various types of uh, projects or programs that tribes are doing in any given time period and, and um, deciding, you know, whether or not they should be recognized for that work, whether it be for innovative uh, cultural, legal, economic development types of uh, reasons. But at the end of the day, they were honoring these these tribes for their efforts and trying to help build a body of work that other tribes and folks who work on behalf of tribes could draw um, uh, teaching moments from, draw inspiration from, or to kind of, you know, the, the whole notion of sharing ideas is what I believe the kind of the major theme of, of how the project works in terms of information, research, publication, you know, building a body of work that tribes can use to build on to kind of over time, you know, help develop themselves uh, for the better. Well, some of um, the adherents to this program um, find it works really, really well. The um, Deidre Mitchell of the Wasayabek uh, Corporation from the Potawatomi's in Michigan is a. Um, I interviewed her, and she was a big proponent, and she lauded all of its um, work. She uh, lectured there herself. Um, what exactly does the program teach individual nations? Is there something that um, we could send our, you know, our Ho-Chunk people to the school and bring back, bring back to our nation that would help our and, economic uh, development? It's, it's one of those things where, you know, on one hand you have folks that say, uh, get an education, you know, go out and learn, uh, get knowledge, 
and bring that back to the community, um, that kind of thing. And the other side of that is, uh, you know, do you do you really have to go off and and get a college degree, graduate degree, you know, go off and do these things, and then come back to the tribal community with that? And so, you know, maybe it's somewhere in the middle of that where uh, people are learning best practices with how to run a governmental entity. Um, I like to, I like in the, the current time period we're in now with what they call the quote unquote old West, you know, back in the, from the 1840s through the 1890s, I, I would say in the, in the American West, um, there were traveling courts. There were towns that there were really not any very many cities, but there were lots of towns throughout the West that were figuring things out. They were learning how to govern and creating a body of law uh, at the same time, and, and and you know implementing policy. And they made mistakes. They they learned. They made successes. You know. Not unlike what tribes are going through in the last fifty or so years, once the once the true self self determination policy started to take hold, and so tribes have been going through that. Now they've been doing it much quicker, and uh, uh, you know the the learning curve has has been much deeper than what the the U.S. Uh, you know cities and towns in the American West had gone through, but in a lot of ways the growing pains that happen in each instance are similar. And so I think tribes have really kind of gotten over the hump in a lot of ways with their development and, and their systems of governance. Um, in a lot of ways, modern day tribal governments look a lot like um, state and county governments. Um, in terms of, you know, how they develop policy and laws and, you know, and then that begs the question, what, is that a good thing? You know, are tribes and members of tribes becoming more like their um, Anglo-European counterparts for better or for worse? You know, is that the path that we really want to take? You know, that's not for me to answer, but in a lot of ways, that's exactly what's been happening and so again that goes back to what i said earlier about you know if we if we want to go send our youth off to faraway colleges and universities to learn these kinds of things and bring them back um is that really helpful does it solve things um maybe maybe not but i think ultimately doing that or by doing that um you see a pattern of us shaping our own native tribes and communities um, to look a lot like, you know, American uh, structured society. And so there's, that's what they call a slippery slope. You know, that there's a lot of pros and cons to doing that. And I think it's up to each individual community to kind of get to the point where they can ask themselves that question and say, is this what we really want for the long term? And that's all part of this notion of nation building and self-governance 
and you know what truly are we doing what's our long-term objectives here and um, do we really have a plan for that that brings me right to uh corporations such as the uh seminole the porch creek um a couple of uh nations out there in the east coast that's are really going gung-ho on this business but uh what are they doing to their culture and i think that speaks to exactly what you just got finished saying that they're going for money but how is that good for their culture is this something that what you're referring to that when the people leave and they come back with this uh, education that where they're losing what it is to be um, indigenous or close to their own people, how we used to be. I, I think that's exactly right. Again, it depends on your perspective. Um, you know, we, we've all heard the kind of stories about how, you know, someone in our family, you know, two, three generations ago would tell the children in the family go off and get your education, you know, go to that boarding school, um, you know, learn English, learn those ways, you know, we got to change, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And, and that's what a lot of our elders now did, you know, back then, and maybe their parents did, you know, from the 1880s through the 1930s and 40s, you know, there's this Indian boarding school policy of you know removal of children and so on and so forth that we're all becoming more painfully aware of and so what effect did that have on them but then what effect did that have on their their children and their children's children up to the present day and so did that leave us with a lasting legacy of this you know we have to leave in order to live uh, we have to leave in order to have uh, a livelihood uh, why do we do that? You know, and this goes back to some of the reasons why the Harvard Project uh, was created was, you know, how can tribes succeed? You know, what can they do to increase their chances of quote unquote success? You know, who gets to decide what that success is? The folks at Harvard, the folks in Washington, our tribal leaders, or our, ourself, you know, you know, those are major questions that we have to continually ask ourselves and, and whatever it is we do, you know, maybe we don't decide that. Maybe we just kind of, we're out there every day and it's a de facto thing. It just becomes what it is. You know, are we really choosing that or are we kind of just letting those forces kind of drive us to where, where we're at in this present day? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, but, um, the facts on the ground show that, you know, natives in this country are, we're assimilated. We all pretty much speak English. Uh, most natives in this country, according to census data, most people who identify as American Indian or Alaska Native are mixed race, mixed culture. And, you know, how does that play into all of this? You know, those are really tough questions and there are no easy answers to this stuff and it's it's a, it's a very difficult tightrope that we walk each day as native people on how we choose to live and where we choose to live and a lot of times you know like some of the data shows that in many households not just native households 
you know, those decisions on where to move the family and raise the family are oftentimes dictated by the um, quality of schools and where the best schools are. And a lot of times those decisions are made based on that. And so many of our schools on tribal lands just don't compare, um, you know, when we say apples to apples to your your average kind of um, charter school or a well-funded public school in other areas. And so those are tough decisions families make. They feel like they need to put their children in a school that's considered, you know, a good school, you know, and prepare them for, you know, competing for an entrance or, you know, uh, admission to a really good college somewhere. And so these, you know, these are questions I've had to deal with with my own family over the years. And, um, you know, it's these are tough decisions that we all have to make when it comes to education, where we live, where we work, and how that uh, tribal government we're from, you know, provides those opportunities or not. One of the things that we're kind of not touching on is this um, sovereignty that you've haven't really addressed, but I mean, you've danced with it because of the Harvard project. Where do we assert our sovereignty when we, when we, you know, when you have benevolence um, programs, you know, NGOs, that type of thing come knocking on our door to help us but are the like the private project itself is this help to us or is this binding us to uh the larger society yeah i think the thing for this show is you know how do we answer these tough questions you know are we making decisions not really even understanding where the gravitational forces lie and how and how to either navigate them, uh, how to uh, be pulled greater towards them. You know, for instance, uh, you know this issue of sovereignty that you're bringing up. You know, we we kick that word around a lot, but we don't really talk about its origin. You know, do you really want to understand that that word, the sovereign or sovereignty? It goes back to old English. It goes back to uh, the realm of a monarch, and they their word was law was throughout that realm, and the word sovereign was that was it that the the sovereign of the land held sway over all people and lives, and um, you know when the when the whole idea of a nation state became kind of or came to the picture in the you know after the Revolutionary War and in Europe in you know 17th, 18th century, that that word sovereign or sovereignty kind of uh, continued on as it applied to nation states and not so much monarchies. But but that term had its origins in monarchy. And you know tribes have kind of taken on that that notion of 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 their their domain, their realm, and and the rules, and and that kind of thing. Uh, we kind of talk about it in a different way than the way it originally was being used. 
And so now, you know, we're in a three-part system here uh, in terms of the government, federal, state, and tribal. And tribes are listed in the Constitution. However, it, they're not part of the structure of the, the federal centralized system the way states are. Nevertheless, we're, we're there and we're part of it for better or for worse. And so to answer your question about sovereignty, you know, it's really up to us. You know how little or how uh, much we want, uh, and you you look at what the colonies did when they were quote unquote part of the crown and under the crown's realm or within the crown's realm, um, they made a decision and chose to kind of create their own destiny there, so to speak. And you know, at that time, they were considered you know insurgent, you know, rebels. Uh, treasonous because they didn't uh, want to continue with the crown and they chose to break away and they just happened to be able to win that that conflict and so now you know in a lot of ways tribes have been absorbed by what happened in, in the aftermath of that history and so we too I'm, I'm not saying that we have to do the same thing what I'm saying is you know we have to decide you know, how much of that we're going to kind of buy into and, and, and mirror for ourselves, or, you know, how do we kind of walk both lines there at the same time, you know, try and stay true to our culture, our language, our spirituality, our, our ways of doing things, but yet kind of be able to navigate the, you know, what I call the dominant culture, because or the occupying culture. That's kind. Of, that's kind of what it is. And 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 if we do have to do that to survive, then you know, which is what we've been doing, that's fine. But what is what are we going to do for the long term? You know, are we always going to be kind of this, you know, in this system we're in now, where we're you know always fighting for grant monies, we're always trying to figure out how to you know get these economic development projects going. And really kind of, even though we may not have a population base to do all this kind of stuff. And so we've had to get, we've had to be very creative with a lot of our economic development kind of projects and activities. And, you know, we've shown that resilience, but I guess to go back to your question, you know, this notion of sovereignty, you know, if we know we're going to be here for the long haul, you know, what is our answer to that question? Um, do we plan on being around? Do we plan on being absorbed into the greater kind of society? And, uh, you know, is there another round of termination in store for us as a tribe or as tribes? Um, you know, I think a lot of that nowadays kind of rests upon what our own goals and objectives are for ourselves. And, you know, it's easier said than done, of course, but I think in any time in history in the last several hundred years, tribes have have had a lot more say and um, um, input in terms of how we are going to answer those questions and rather than somebody else. So I say we should take advantage of that and continue to push on and forward on, on how that gets developed. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ideas about how to do that. Um, but uh, the question will never go away. It's always going to be there. What in your mind is the best uh, resource for 
nations that find themselves lacking financially, you know, from an in economic um, development, where do we go? Who do we who do we talk to? I mean, obviously we can't do it ourselves. Otherwise, we would have done it. So without, you know, binding ourselves to these organizations, who do we look to? Well, I think we talked about that. We look to ourselves. We look to our own kind of, we, we, we look to an honest review of ourselves and what we can and can't do. Uh, you know, what what aligns with the kind of society we have or want to have, what aligns with our culture, what aligns with how we do things. And once we kind of look into that, you know, it's not, it's, I hate to say this, but it, in a lot of ways, you know, we talk about corporate development, even with nonprofits, they call these strategic planning uh, questions, you know, um, what are our values? What do we believe in? You know, and, and the answers to those questions will help guide you in terms of what type of business and, and activities uh, we want to do and, and how we can really strengthen that in a way that helps create um, sales and services and and uh, being able to do that over time and have uh, satisfied customers. And so... You know, trying to say, okay, well, how do we create satisfied members? How do we create a, a satisfied community? You know, well, it goes back to our planning and what we want to do and what what can we do that makes sense for us. You know, we're not like the tribe down the street. You know, we're trying to, and this is a big tenet of the Harvard Project, which is, you know, uh, looking at. Uh, aligning the culture of a tribe to its governance system, you know, trying to do a, a boilerplate uh, Indian Reorganization Act constitution that was designed for a social club, you know, th and giving that to a tribe that um, was based on matriarchy or, uh, or a theocracy or, you know, some other type of governance, traditional government that was completely opposite of, of that American, you know, Elks Club type charter, social club charter, you know. So over the years, most, many tribes have changed their constitutions. They've revised them in total or in uh, lots of other ways to help better align uh, their governing documents and the way they govern themselves to their traditional culture and language and, and spiritual kind of identities. And those are the tribes that have and by and large succeeded uh, more than a lot of the other tribes who haven't done that. And so, again, systems of governance, tying those to who you are, how you do things, and matching those to your goals and objectives over the long term, I think, is a first start. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, and that, those answers are within, I believe. You're not going to go to Washington, D.C. and and find the answers to, to those kinds of questions, you're not going to find it in a book. You know, a lot of times we find it by asking within what our own community, ourselves, our elders. And, and I, I really believe that those answers are there. We just have to, we just have to humble ourselves enough to go, go ask the questions. Well, you've given me more questions than answers, but I think that's what I kind of wanted, you know? So, in a way, I think you're helping. Uh, I hope you're helping everybody here. Um, I don't want to hold you up too much longer, but um, 
I'd like to give you a couple minutes and anything you want to sell, shill, um, any, anything. I would just like to give you a floor for a couple minutes before I cut you loose. Um, yeah, you got something you want to share with us? You know, please come forward and let's, let's have this information from you. Well, I appreciate the time. You know, this is a, a great, uh, um, opportunity for, for you and your listeners to not just me, but with other guests on your show to really kind of throw ideas out there and share concepts and, and, and kind of ask folks to really think hard about these questions because no one person is going to solve it. Uh, it's going to take many of us working together to really come and find those answers and, 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 and reach for them and, and, and implement them. And maybe then it won't even work. You know, it's a trial and error thing. And I think that's part of how a, a democracy type of organizations, which I think tribes in many ways were more democratic than they were anything else, you know, traditionally, uh, mostly, I, I would say. But going back to your question, you know, there's some interesting parallels with where we're at in terms of where the colonies were in the mid 1700s you know at that time the the english crown it was said that they were he would uh, i think george the third second or third was implementing more uh, draconian um, laws and taxes regulations on the colonists in uh, north america and um of course, we know how that all turned out, but the point is, is that throughout that process, the different leaders within the colonies would come together and really kind of start to advocate uh, a larger governmental system where the colonies were were parts of it, but none of them were equal, you know, had more power than the other. And we see a lot of those kind of concepts come out of the Iroquois Confederation, We've seen the U.S. colonies uh, kind of use those concepts to, to create. Well, the first uh, try was the Articles of Confederation, which didn't last. And there is some there is some actual research by folks like uh, Professor um, uh, Clinton from who used to teach at Arizona State University about how. Uh, one of the major reasons why the Articles of Confederation didn't work is because it gave too many, too much authority to different colonies over dealing with Indians, and it wasn't done through more of a centralized government. So it led to things like one call or one like in Georgia or Virginia making treaties with tribes individually, and then those same lands were that either were being sold or um, uh, traded off in one fashion or another multiple times and so it became a problem amongst the colonies in terms of how they were dealing in some ways double dealing with tribes in their areas and it just caused conflict and so i think that was one of the major reasons why they had to go back to the drawing board and come up with what we have now which is the the constitution and and it set forth some centralized principles on how to deal with tribes and we still live with that today and so what i would offer is thinking about how tribes can use those concepts now to come together in in the same way that the colonies did and form a centralized government instead of 
you know, the, the government working against 500 and what well, we got 74 tribes now, um, the government works with each against each one of those individually in a lot of ways. And yeah, we have the national Congress for American Indian. It's, it's supposed to be a governmental entity, but it's not, but, you know, having one government to government, uh, relationship whereby all the tribes have a governmental entity that it goes through to deal with the government, the federal government is, is really what I'm talking about. You know, it's so that one small tribe in Alaska or village or, or anywhere in the country has the, the might and power of all the tribes with it when it's dealing with the federal government rather than the other way around. I think that's, something that needs to be explored and looked at to see if we could use, utilize that, you know, over the long term to help kind of, um, advance tribal interest and tribal, uh, our tribal nation's, um, best interests for ourselves rather than, you know, having individual laws created by Congress over the years that affect one tribe in particular, whether it be over land, rights of ways, railroads, economic development, water, you name it. If you look at Title 25 of the U.S. Code, it's it's all about individual acts of Congress dealing with individual tribes. And sometimes they're statutes of general application to all tribes, but many times they're not. And so nowhere else in the U.S. Code do you have uh, Congress making laws on or behalf or against uh, one ethnic group. In fact, some of the Supreme Court opinions would say we have to hold up a lot of these laws and regulations because if we don't, an entire title of the U.S. Code would be deemed unconstitutional. So, you know, they had to keep it together lest it fall apart. And so I think over time, as we get more trained professionals, lawyers, are really pushing the envelope on these concepts. We'll see that we'll see it for what it is, which is, you know, uh, on the on the level of an apartheid system. You know, if you can't have decision making ability over your own land because it's in trust, well, is it really your land? No, because it's entitled. The name of the title is in the U.S. government, and the Indian landowner is really not a landowner; they're a beneficiary, and it's under the legal trust system where they still get to make the decisions on your behalf, it's not your land. And so, you know, what is that? You know, well, the only way to really get control over it is to take it out of trust and have it in fee simple. But then once you do that, you lose the nature of that land as, as it once was Indian land. And so it's a, it's a pro and con there, you know, but why should it have to be that way? You know? And so, you know, when you look at some of these other countries that dealt with indigenous people and how, especially in terms of land tenure and, and uh, the, all the bundle of sticks that owners have over their own land, you know, Indians don't have that, not the full bundle. They have some of them and all of them. And so we're, we're, we're loath to talk about that publicly because that conversation can quickly get out of hand and turn into a termination conversation. And so that's why we, we leave it lying where it is in hopes that, you know, we can kind of 
build a fence around it and where it doesn't become yet another policy in a long line of sub policies that make things worse. And so it's, when you said dancing earlier, you're, you're right. Indian lawyers and policymakers and tribal leaders, we're always dancing. We're always trying to figure out how to limit problems and help create solutions. And, and you know, it's been a very difficult, difficult uh, string of, of wins and, and losses. And, um, you know, it's a daily struggle. How do we um, find out about this? You brought up quite a bit there. Um, how do we look these things up? How do we see what's going on? Is there a... Um, well, you know, I, I really believe that there should be like a think tank where... And, and there has been lots of attempts at like from NCAI recently to do like a policy think tank and a few other places have tried to do it. But we really need a place, a bipartisan kind of place where that's funded properly with... with highly educated, uh, spiritual, native uh, men and women who who have these indigenous concepts and principles that can be utilized through the use of a kind of American legal concepts, if that's possible. Because I think the answers are there. Uh, we just, we have to really step aside from, step back from, you know, these traditional notions of the American legal system and its adversarial nature and I think more and more people are starting to look at that, you know. And so we have to really kind of be willing to have an open mind with it, like a, a blank slate or, or canvas, so to speak, when we're thinking about systems of governance going forward. You know, does it have to be a certain way over another way, you know? And, you know, can we solve these problems that really kind of get us back to the way we, you know, we used to be? And that's a very big statement to say because people will say that's over we're not going back uh and anybody that thinks we can is is a fool you know but i believe that there is a balance there's plenty of countries around the world who have maintained their their culture their ethnicity their, their identity the way they do things in, in that traditional sense but have also been successful in the modern business world you know i think about japan I think about israel and a few other places where they've been able to figure a lot of this stuff out man you're gonna make it tough for me to go to sleep tonight thank you very much <laughs> sorry but you asked it so, yeah yeah you know, sometimes you, you get what you ask for exactly <laughs> Uh, well, I don't want to keep you any longer, but um, how do we uh, how do we get in contact with you? Do you have a a website? I mean, I don't want to inundate you, you know, with questions for people if they have them. But uh, is there a way that uh, we can get a hold of you? Um, do you yep. have a website? Yeah, my email is primacy.harjo at gmail.com. You know, I, I love these kinds of questions. It's what I do for a living. And I'm always looking to help tribes with all these different kinds of questions, whether it's housing, whether it's um, economic development, but also um, we're getting more into uh, cultural aspects and how to kind of integrate culture and spirituality into housing and, and economic development and just really education and, and health and food and agriculture. And uh, in fact, I'm working with a group here in Oklahoma to create a federally chartered co-op to uh, ranch bison and be able to create a vertical kind of supply chain around bison all the way to, to, uh, to the table. So, you know, what does that look like? Right. And so how do we incorporate traditional notions of, uh, 
of uh, Plains Indian lifestyle into that model so that it provides jobs, it reinforces culture and language, but also uh, helps economic development efforts for small town communities in the area. Man, oh man. Um, I'd like to have you back on sometime in the future, um, going down this road and discuss some of the things you brought up. Um, would you be willing? Sure, anytime. I appreciate it. Okay, we have uh, attorney Tim Harjo. He's experienced at uh, economic development and policy in Indian country. Uh, thank you very much for your time, sir. It's been a wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Shelby. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the uh, people of District 3 who are putting together a candidate's forum for the vacant District 3 seat 3 legislative seat. It'll be held Wednesday, September 27th at the Madison Branch Office. Festivities are scheduled to kick off at 6 p.m. with a potluck scheduled at uh, 5 p.m. Hopefully they can get a WebEx uh, set up so that uh, those of us who can't attend we still can uh, attend virtually. Uh, I'd like to say good luck to all the candidates. Andy Cloud, Lambert Cleveland, Sarissa Rickman, Tim Hansen, and write-in candidate Jamie DeCora. Finally, I'd like to congratulate Hinukskuga for her TikTok video. Uh, ran across it. A lot of fun. And I'd like to encourage more Ho-Chunks to post and share more Ho-Chunk language content. I mean, it'll be so much better, and it'll be so much easier to learn our language. We kind of make it all something that we all do, and we can all participate with. So kudos. Hanachpi <laughs> Hey, 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 h